Hi, welcome back to another edition of the Boulder Bolding, and we're doing our COVID edition, as I'm calling it, and that's simply because uh, we are, Alec and I are unable to meet together under the same roof and sharing the same mics, so we're still uh, having our conversation via phone. Alec, in our first two COVID editions, we meandered a bit off our topic because we were uh, addressing income and wealth inequality. And our session today wants to continue that discussion and get us moving forward with other aspects of steady state economics. Alec, our last sessions before being interrupted by the virus crisis, what we could call the vrisis, concentrated on one aspect of steady-state economics, income and wealth inequality. We discussed the distinction between wealth and income earned and unearned and the outdatedness of misdirected use of GDP to measure, quote, wealth. And by the way, wealth and health have the same cognitive root, and ultimately economic measurements are about measuring well-being of individuals, social organizations, and um, the environment they live in. Of all the points of steady-state economics you laid out for us, you insisted that the critical starting point was income and wealth disparity. Little did we know how intense the reality of that has come upon us. In a little over two months, Alec, we've experienced a pandemic, an economic shutdown bordering on the magnitude of the Great Depression, and now we're experiencing uh, racial tensions. And for some people, this has been predicted that social unrest is, is bound to happen. You know, at times it may seem like discussions of economics and income inequality perhaps are not the most pressing things for us right now. But Alec, I want to return to our subject of income inequality because I think you agree with me that these are still giant underlying issues, the issue of income inequality and wealth disparity, not only in our country, but in the world. I think the vrisis is certainly revealing to us that things have got to change And a fundamental aspect of that is economics. We have to realize that the um, economic paradigms we've been working with simply will not work anymore. It's not true that all boats are going to rise with the tide. The redistribution is a real issue, and it's destructive for society, both personally and socially. Radical wealth... Uh, accumulation is just obscene and can no longer be tolerated. So, Alec, I want you to uh, just kind of reiterate why this issue is so uh, paramount, even when we can be distracted by all kinds of things like uh, pandemics, economic downturns, racial tensions, political divisions. Shouldn't we focus on these kind of issues and maybe lay aside uh, for some sunny day more discussions about uh, a 
clear future in sustainable economics? Or is now the time really to be discussing this in a more concerted way? What did uh, Kenneth Boulding and Herman Daly, how did they uh, discuss a, a crisis, or did they like this? Income and wealth inequality as a necessary step before we can do anything else, in other words, is terribly important, and it was underlined by uh, Herman Daly. My own sense, uh, this is uh, why, and that is that if we don't attend to income and wealth inequality, then there can be violence because people are so angry and uh, feel uh, that this income inequality is not ethically justified or economically. In other words, it's not due to somebody just earning more because they're more intelligent, they're more creative, they work longer hours, they're more ethical, etc. It is due to the economic system itself, the structure of the system, and not because of any particular virtue or lack of virtue on the part of individuals or businesses or uh, what have you. So that's one reason. There is a possibility of violence or uh, external violence, uh, but also internal violence, that is to say, despair and cynicism and indifference. The other reason, it seems to me, is that if there is income inequality and wealth inequality in the past, the economics profession and neoliberalism as a movement has said that the only way to deal with this poverty that results from income and wealth inequality is to grow the economy. The whole idea of all boats float, and, uh, uh, and that has been shown to be incorrect. That is to say that the economic system structure takes most of the growth of an, uh, an economy and gives it to the very, very, very top, precisely because of the structure. So that we can't deal with the despair and the uh, sense of, of inequality and injustice, if you will, just by growing anymore, because the rewards will again go to the very top. And also, growth is inimical to uh, steady-state economics. So if we want to have steady-state economics, we must have much better distribution of income and wealth. And the challenge, I think, for us that hasn't altogether been answered by people, that people know that this kind of inequality is, uh, is unjust, that is to say, is not due to, to hard work or more intelligent work, but is due to the structure of the system, as we said earlier. But there's very little literature, it seems to me, and very little of what people are in favor of if you ask the question, all right, so are you guys saying that 
the only solution to income and wealth inequality is absolute equality of income and wealth. And they ask that question because they know that if you take that bait, uh, you'll uh, sound absurd that everybody gets the same income. Nobody's in favor of everybody getting uh, the same income because obviously certain uh, people and certain products uh, and services require a greater reward than others. So the issue of what is it that you want other, uh, with precision rather than just saying, well, we don't want this level of inequality. The next question is, well, if you don't like this level of inequality, what level would you think is a good thing? And the other part of that question is, do you agree that no inequality or equality for, of incomes is also unjust because you pay people much more than what they've, uh, they've earned? My own sense is that this is terribly important to start suggesting what is the kind of ratio of the highest income to the lowest income is the one that you would like to see, or wealth for that matter. How do we come to range of ratios that we could say, yes, that is what constitutes a fair society or a good society that has incomes, uh, disparities of that level, but no more, but also no less. Right. Well, I do believe that, at least in the past, there was ratios for how much a CEO should make above the mean of the employees, which I believe it was 4 to 1 or something like that. But no, now, it was 40 to 1. 40 to 1, but now it's like 3 to 400 to Yes, one. it's 10 times more. Yes. I, I want to say something about what you just said, and that is that there wasn't an agreement that that was the right uh, ratio. It was just that was the average in the 50s and 60s. Right, but it, at least that, that is one example of a, yes. a vile... You're not talking some pie-in-the-sky idealism here, no. I mean, there, there, it was actually practiced, a, a kind of ratio. that What you're saying, it was sort of haphazard or sort of came about through, yeah it came about it uh, wasn't happened that, that was the case yes. wasn't intentional so to speak yeah but yes. it is an example of how we can work at ratios i do want to uh return to your discussion about uh neoliberalism a little bit and and this demand for growth because they they succumbed to the more base views of humanity that well, we're all selfish beings, and we're not going to be able to curb corruption, uh, selfishness, and hoarding. So the best way to uh, fight poverty was uh, to have a growing economy, which really did work. Um, some of the people that argue against uh, socialism say, well, here's your example, and, that, and you have said yourself, well, yes. It did raise a, a huge amount of people out of poverty into a decent middle-class uh, living. Yes. But it For can't... a number of years, that is to say from, let's say, after the war, for 30 years, from 1945 and 1975, beginning around there, 
there's not very much difference in opinion that from 75 or 1980 with the Reagan administration and the Thatcher administration in uh, England, there was a reversal of this uh, reduction in income and wealth inequality towards greater inequality as a result of uh, removing the constraints that we had put on capitalism, beginning with the FDR and continuing all the way perhaps to the Johnson administration, let's correct, say. Correct. And so after 1980, it, it's, it's almost like the push for growth even gets stronger because you have to keep supporting, quote, uh, this economy, um, which requires infinite growth. And yes. even though it's now really quite apparent that this planet cannot tolerate infinite growth. I mean, we, right. we ha right. absolutely have our limits and we have got to start reconsidering a different way of doing economics than constant growth. Yes, even more frightening to very many people is not only that we have to constrain capitalism again, but that even constrained capitalism is not capable of dealing with our, with our problems having to do with the environment and income and wealth distribution, and that therefore uh, people might oppose it because they, they think that if we don't have capitalism, we'll have socialism, and everybody knows that socialism is not a good idea. I think that that's the great giant elephant in, in the room. Uh, people are concerned, hey, you know, we could do with constrained capitalism. Why not continue with it? We just have to reform it rather than say, well, it might be the case that this is the end of the life of capitalism and perhaps even of socialism. You know, and that therefore we need to look for a third uh, alternative. And there are people who are writing about these things and also uh, showing how these ideas about post-capitalism and post-socialism can be put together. Correct. Um, and then, the, uh, of course, the issue that we have talked about already is, you know, what, what is it going to take to actually turn a corner here? Um, will it take more, more crisis, more deeper crisis, more pain, more social yeah. unrest? Or is there, are there ways that we can move towards that now and ways in which we can start embracing uh, other alternatives? I've said in the past that uh, an article in Adbusters has influenced my thinking very, very much. This is an article that was written about, uh, about 30 years ago or so, but it has remained with me uh, because the article performed various experiments or reported on various experiments that were done about do people and systems change because something uh, uh, produced a great deal of suffering or a great deal of pain, and people rebel and then produce a better system. And it turns out that that's uh, historically and uh, even psychologically not necessarily the case. That is to say, as a result 
or things failing in, in an economic system or in a political system or in any other kind of system, but let's talk about the economic system, uh, people can go towards something that is even more destructive. So, for example, we have movements this day towards uh, neo-fascism, that this is the solution to crisis. So it seems to me that the other better way of dealing with crises is not to go in the direction of violence and authoritarianism, but to go in the direction of already having examples of how we can organize ourselves economically to the benefit of the vast majority of people. We need to have, in other words, not only ideas, but actual ways of producing institutions that produce the kind of results that we would like to see. Now, this is where we're going to get a little political here, because it, it really is going to be primarily government that can orchestrate those kinds of things, unless you have some sort of radical rethinking of what a corporation is. Yes, what a corporation is, and what a good, and more, and larger still, what a good economic system is. And that's a major issue because uh, economic departments, not only in the United States, but all over the world, have become really quite dogmatic, and not open to very much uh, discussion about alternatives. So, they have a lot of status, even though the ideas that they have recommended for the past 50 years or so, 45 years, have not really worked out very well. Uh, I think that it depends very much on the citizenry and not on experts to propose different ideas, perhaps reading radical economists or, or psychologists or others, but nevertheless taking it upon themselves to take democracy seriously and to propose ideas that they're in favor of that will benefit the vast majority of people. Right. So just like economics today is divided up into macro and micro, micro uh, I, I, I believe it's still the case. We, we have to look at macro changes, but also there has to be changes even on individual levels of, you know, how, how we proceed, what we want in life, what makes us happy. So we've talked a lot about that in the context yes. of this, that, that wealth equals health. You can't, there's no such thing as constant growth. When, when you're a human, you constantly grow till you're about 25 years old. <laughs> and then and then you sustain that for a while, and then you decline. So it's it's not possible to really. There's not no real biological model of how we can constantly be growing. But uh, yes. indeed, yeah. the very people that suggested that. And let's take an example like uh, like Adam Smith, who suggested that. In the 18th century, that's a part of the 18th century, it was a really a good thing to have the economy grow because there was very much of the wealth, which was not really very great, was concentrated in very few people, 
and we had all of these resources and uh, the possibility of creating machines and the possibility of educating and training people which could actually be used to increase uh, the output of every economy and that would benefit the vast majority of people because now they would have income to buy the very things that produce a good life. But even a person like Adam Smith, who was a champion of growth and the system that would produce growth, he uh, himself thought that it would maybe last about 200 years. In other words, that he knew ahead of time that people would get benefit for having more. If you're poor, more is better. If you already have enough, more is actually deleterious. So he thought that rational human beings would actually grow up until they would have enough, and then they wouldn't. Uh, they wouldn't be so stupid as to uh, spend all of their lives grabbing for more stuff, since more stuff beyond enough doesn't make you happier. Well, Alec, you just described America over the last 50 years. Certainly yeah. some of our civil strife is over a lot of people's never really accomplishing a a place of sufficiency while a good portion of society is over consuming at a ridiculous rate and And, and then it has an effect so that if a very rich person beyond even satiation uh, and buys you know, more cars or more jewelry or more this, more that, more the other. But even even that will stop so that the vast majority of rich people don't buy more stuff. They might have, you know, 10 mansions and this and that and the other. But if you're a billionaire, you can't spend all of your income. You can't spend all of your wealth. So what you do is you accumulate it. Right, yeah. And therefore, uh, it doesn't really help for everybody else. In the past, when you became richer, consumed some some of those riches, and then took those savings and put it into expansion by hiring more people, by building more factories, by doing this and that and the other. So there was a hope that, and, and a realization that actually... Some, uh, some riches could help the society at large. But now we've gotten to a place where the rich people just accumulate riches. And they spend... Enormous saving that is not used to put into investment. Right, and they also have a huge preoccupation with how to save their wealth or hide their wealth or put it into yes. safe havens and they spend a... An, a an incredible amount of time and effort uh, into doing that. Well, yes, and talent. Well, yeah. Financial people who know how to, you know, uh, do these things without being put into prison. Uh, yes, that's right. So all of this, all of these savings, all of this potential uh, that can be used to produce good lives for the vast majority of people, and not just the United States, but all over the world, is wasted because it's, sits there doing nothing. Hiding. It's hiding <laughs> in yeah, safe it's hiding, but Also, it's inert. It's right. inert, Keith. That's the thing that is so devastating. We, we've now spent uh, 
several sessions on uh, this topic. Yeah. And of course, there's lots and lots of information beyond what we're providing here. Alec, we want to continue on with our discussion of the, the suggestions of a steady state economics also known as ecological economics. We, we're going to move on to some other things, uh, other points that you brought up early on in our podcast. The virus has ac- accentuated several of the steady state goals articulated uh, by Alec. We must have, one, a responsive government where cash does not equal political power. We must have reform, reform our measures of economic activity. And we've discuss that, Uh, have public banking, stop treating the scarce, that is natural resources in the environment, as if it was not, and treating the non-scarce, like stock portfolios, as if they are scarce. But in particular, the non-scarce one is education. That is to say, education is not scarce in that once you produce knowledge, then it's very, very cheap to distribute it very, very widely. It's virtually costless. Okay. And, yeah. and then uh, redefine profit as enhancing the common good instead of the obscene coffers of the super-rich. Yes, that's right. Yeah. That last one brings us to this concept of economic rent that economists have put together, but it's not really been used very much. Okay, well, hopefully, uh, well, we will get to uh, a larger discussion that in days ahead. All right, so I believe for the next session that we're going to do together, we are going to explore one aspect of steady state, which is reforming GDP or reforming how we gauge, how we measure what is a healthy economy. And that's where we're going to, what we're going to address next time. Any uh, parting thoughts, Alec? Well, only to say that actually major economists of the past, from Adam Smith in the latter part of the 18th century to John Stuart Mill in the 19th century, Uh, and Keynes in the 20th century were uh, very keenly interested in in this topic. Okay. And it has been really brushed aside altogether by the economics profession. Well, we want to discuss that and why that is as well. Yes. And uh, we'll get to that in our next session. So for now, we're going to wrap this up, and we'll see you next time.